The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I'm honored to welcome my guest, Mr. Alan Giebert. He is an award-winning agricultural journalist who focuses on farm and food policy. He is the author of the popular nationally syndicated weekly column titled The Farm and Food File. It appears in more than 70 newspapers throughout the United States and Canada. And in addition to his weekly syndicated column, he is also a contributor to the online publication Daily Yonder. Mr. Giebert was raised on a 720-acre, 100-cow dairy farm in southern Illinois. After graduating from the University of Illinois in 1980, he worked as a writer and senior editor at Professional Farmers of America and Successful Farming Magazine. In 1984, he returned to Illinois to establish his freelance writing business and to serve as a contributing editor to Farm Journal Magazine. With his daughter, Mary Grace, Mr. Giebert co-wrote The Land of Milk and Uncle Honey, Memories from the Farm of My Youth. It was published in May of 2015 by the University of Illinois Press. It is now in its second printing. Welcome, Mr. Giebert. Thank you. So I would like to talk about two different aspects of your work and life, one being your perspective of farming and farm policy, and the other your experiences with journalism, because I think they're connected in so many ways. So my first question is, how and why did you go from farming to journalism? The short answer is I needed better grades in college than I was taking, and I knew I could write, so I took some journalism classes. But I had had journalism in high school, and I always had an idea or an inkling that I wanted to write. After college, however, I did go back home to the farm and farmed with my wife, the lovely Catherine, for about 18 months. And I had an older brother, Richard, who was already home on the farm. Incidentally, Richard is the president of the Illinois Farm Bureau right now. <laughs> Different lives, right. same family. But after about 18 months, both Catherine and I knew we weren't going to be on the farm very much longer because my father was still quite young. And, you know, German, Lutheran, family farm, he wasn't going to give up to some whippersnapper from the University of Illinois. So then I went back to the University of Illinois and got a degree and then went into writing. Uh huh. So, from your experience in writing for a number of publications, how free did you feel to editorialize? Oh, there was no freedom to editorialize at all. I mean, when I started out in, in ag journalism, it was with Professional Farmers of America, and we were writing market newsletters and very stick to the facts. Here's what's happened in the markets. Here's what we think is going to happen. When I moved over to magazine work, Successful Farming and Farm Journal. I had a great deal of freedom to choose the topics I wanted to write about. In fact, I had almost an unlimited ability to do that. I, I went everywhere and wrote everything and, and saw everything, sometimes twice, from, from Europe to Mexico to Alaska. And that was wonderful. It was very liberating. But I still had to be a straightforward reporter. There was no room for editorial at all in the magazines. Right. But now you do editorialize. You write an editorial column. It's extremely opinionated. People love your column. 
Have you gotten any feedback from those who might have a different opinion, such as your brother, for example? Well, many people ask how my brother and I get along with him being on the far right of uh, agricultural politics and the Farm Bureau leadership, National Farm Bureau leadership, and me being a little bit to the left of center of all of that. And I say well, we get along just fine because we're brothers, and that's the key. But, you know, I, I think it's very easy to have, everybody can have their own opinions, but people who read my column on a regular basis, and, and, and that includes, you know, people who don't agree with me, and I think that's really when I win. Yes. <laughs> when people read it that don't agree with me because they, they feel compelled to have to. What they'll get is not just my opinion, but they'll get the facts behind that opinion and the source material, too. Absolutely. So it's just not someone standing out on the street corner on a soapbox. It's journalism. And that's quite a bit different than from what I did. And in fact, when I started the column in 1993, I did so because the then editor of Farm Journal called me. Their Farm Journal at the time was located in Philadelphia, and, and I live and write and have for 30 years out of central Illinois. He called me to tell me that they didn't think Farm Journal would be buying any of my stories anymore. Hmm. This is a magazine that I'd sold every word I'd written in it for eight years, and when I asked him why, he said, well, you don't walk down the middle of the road anymore. And my immediate thought was, and I told him this, well, why would I walk down the middle of the road when I get hit by cars going both ways? <laughs> and that kind of clinched the deal for him, you know, in his mind, so <laughs> I started the column then. Yeah. Well, I want to ask you, you've traveled all over the country, internationally, actually, in writing about farm and farm policies. And with your book, you've gone on book tours, and you are living in the middle of farm country. Tell me the changes that you've witnessed that hit you the hardest compared to you know today versus when you were growing up. Well, you can almost get nostalgic or romantically weepy when I look back because what I miss the most what's just absolutely gone anymore from when we were, when I was a child 50 years or so ago, are the people. There's nobody out here anymore, Melinda. They're gone. Yeah. You know, you can drive down the mile or so road to get to our house, and we literally lived at the end of the road where the Mississippi began, the river began. I grew up in the Mississippi River bottom south of St. Louis. And we had 30, 40 people. The school bus was full by the time they got down to the Geberts and picked up us five. But now, not only is there no one there anymore, there's no houses there anymore. There's no barns there anymore. And as I wrote in one column several years ago, there's not even a farm cat anymore. Mm-hmm. It's all gone. The fences, the barns, the cows, the kids, the corn, it's all gone. And I think, I don't think, I, I know we've lost an essential element of America and American agriculture when when we've moved everything to the technocratic side in, in search of profit and production. And I'll take full responsibility for that, too. I was all part of that back in the 70s and the 80s. I mean, when I went to the University of Illinois at College of Agriculture, we went to learn the science, the business of farming. And we were told we weren't farmers, but that we were businessmen. And that's just what we became. That's exactly what we then did. And I find it terribly ironic, or maybe now I've lived long enough to see everything come back around in a circle, because now the big farm groups are trying to be farmers again, aren't they? They're presenting themselves to the public as farmers and ranchers and not business people. Well, 
they couldn't be farther from farmers and ranchers. They're really, really asset managers and, and, and business people. And this is all under the heading of efficiency. And in September, I attended the Senate Judiciary Committee hearing on the consolidation and competition in the U.S. seed and agrochemical industries. And they were disturbing from the perspective of the need for innovation and technology. We do need innovation, certainly, but if it means taking people off the farm and eliminating those rural communities, I'm not sure we're winning. Well, you're a dietitian. You well understand the dynamic at play in food, the interface between food and nutrition around the world. We grow more than enough food in the world today to feed everybody a diet of nearly 2,000 calories. We throw away 30% of the food that we grow. That's how rich or lazy or inefficient we are. So, you know, talking about efficiency is kind of mind-boggling to me. But more than that, all we ever talk about, you know, I was in ag economics, so I have somewhat of a basis to talk about this point of view. All we ever talk about is growth. Right. We need to grow. We need to grow 2%, 3%. You pick up the Wall Street Journal every day, the New York Times, every day they want to talk about the economy and how we failed to grow. Well, maybe we've maxed our limit on growth, and maybe we ought to start talking about what what some people call the steady state. Maybe we ought to just try to get by with what we have now and stop warming the planet, stop digging up three pounds of natural resources for every one pound of consumption that we have out here. You know, the water and the soil have their limits. And the constant pushing of science to expand those limits without really examining where we are and where they'll be, that sounds a little bit like madness to me. Mm-hmm. And I'm really glad you brought that up because I have in front of me one of the columns that you wrote called The Sounds of Science. And in fact, during the Senate Judiciary Committee hearings, I heard the CEOs of the biggest agrochemical and agribusinesses say, we've got to base our decisions moving forward on science, not emotion. And being that you are a wordsmith, I really want to talk a little bit about how we frame different stories that we're weaving and the words that we use and the words that we treasure. So science is being more important than, say, an emotional reaction to dirty water or soil that no longer is fertile. Tell me a little bit about how we frame and speak about these issues and how important it is to choose the right words. Well, I have a friend who's a ag economist emeritus at Auburn University, and he's he's an econometrician. And what that means is he models economies and then plugs in, well, what happens if we change, you know, fuel prices by 10%. So he always talks about the con in economics. And I know that while that's a pun or a play on words, it's very true in just about everything we do. It's how you phrase it. If you can create a study that proves your point, and all you have to do is pay for that study, you're going to pay for that study. And that's what we do in ag economics, and that's what we do in ag policy. And then we can frame it by saying, oh, my, you know, if we have country of origin labeling, 
it will cost the American consumers $3.5 billion more in beef prices. Well, the argument's over then, isn't it? Because we've now framed it by costing too much. Using facts and figures, we essentially purchased. We just created those figures out of thin air. We do it all the time. And that's the science that everybody in agriculture and ag policy leans on. We have to have, quote, sound science. Unless, of course, we disagree with that science. As, for instance, in agriculture, you'll find very few farm groups that have a stated national policy on climate change. Mm-hmm. Because that science is not what they consider sound. So then they change the discussion. In late September, of all things, the National Corn Growers Association endorsed and tweeted a big study that came out of, quote, a U.S. senator's office pounding the EPA on what they called overregulation and, of course, pounding the EPA on what's called the water of the U.S. rule. Well, you dig into it a little bit more. The Senate office it came out of was James Inhofe from Oklahoma, the biggest climate change denier in the history of the U.S. Senate. Why would a farm group quote a climate change denier and endorse the policies that he puts forth when they all know they're out here every day that climate is changing and changing dramatically? So they choose the words. They then frame the debate. And frankly, most of the American eating public, the food side of the farm and food file, they really are, don't know what's going on. You know, to, to them, they're all bewildered. They walk into a, I'll tell you a quick story about how choosing words. It's on the local paper. A big chain supermarket, Kroger, nearby was having a ribeye sale. Beef ribeyes. Well, nobody likes beef ribeyes more than me. So I go to the store and I look at the meat case. There are all the ribeyes. Not one is marked with a grade, you know, choice or select or prime. Well, they wouldn't be prime. They just, they don't sell prime in the grocery store. But they weren't graded. There was no USDA grade on. So you didn't know if you were buying eight-year-old Holstein cow or year-and-a-half-old Angus beef. So a guy walked by behind the counter in the smock. Looked like a butcher. And I said, what's the grade of these? He picked up one. He read the package. He said, well, they're Angus. I said, well, Angus is a breed. I said, what is the USDA grade? He looked at the package again. And he said, they're Angus. Well, he not even he knew the grades of beef. And he's selling them in a national supermarket chain. So we are just becoming more and more illiterate. And that then, it works to the advantage of the sound science people who want to push their own agenda in the jargon that they, the convoluted jargon, the arcane jargon that they use. You want to get lost in the weeds in a hurry? Read the farm bill. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. And not the average consumer will never go there. I mean, we're lucky if we read the headlines, really. Well, here's, here's the greatest misnomer in agriculture today. Two words, crop insurance. Yeah. There's no such thing as crop insurance. I mean, think about it this way. If you have a car and you have insurance on the car and something happens to the car, you your insurance pays for you to get a car or to get the car fixed. If you have homeowner's insurance and your home is burglarized, your homeowner's insurance replaces the stuff that was burgled. So now you have crop insurance. Doesn't that sound like if you lose the crop, your insurance pays for new food? Not at all. You as a taxpayer, general taxpayer in America, pays 62 cents of every dollar premium that crop insurance costs. But if there's a crop failure, like there was in 2012, the insurance doesn't cover a new crop. 
the insurance actually insures the revenue of the farmer. That's what you're insuring. The insurance makes up his revenue shortfall. You, the taxpayer, paid 62% of that premium to buy that insurance. And now, with a crop failure, food prices are higher and you're paying for that too. Hmm. So there's no such thing as crop insurance. There never was. But here we go. Let me remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you are tuned into Food Sleuth Radio, where we are joined by Mr. Alan Giebert, award-winning agricultural journalist who focuses on farm and food policy. He is the author of the nationally syndicated weekly column, The Farm and Food File. Well, I've noticed that you can pretty much change someone's opinion very quickly simply by telling them that the cost of their food is going to go up. That's one of the big fear generators. So the cost of food, the other fear-mongering phrase that I hear a lot is, oh my gosh, the population is going to increase by so much, we have to produce 60% more food. That was the quote during the Senate Judiciary hearings. And we've got to have all this technology to do it. And I'm sitting there thinking, well, basically what we're talking about are commodity crops, corn, soy, and cotton. And because I am a dietitian, I'm pretty much telling people to eat more grass-based meat and dairy. I'm telling them to choose organic. I'm telling them to eat more fruits and vegetables. But actually the fruits and vegetables, we're needing to import more of those because we've got more of this commodity production. That's exactly right. Two things that I would say to, to your comment just there. At the Senate hearings, the population is always thrown. It used to be nine billion by 2050, right? Now it's 10 billion. I noticed in those hearings, it said 10 billion. Well, they, we just inflated it by another 15 percent. But even if you go by nine billion or so, that's 34 percent more people here on the world than we have in the world today. And we're going to need 60 percent more goods, right? That's that's the thing. So we have a two-to-one usage. That's how wasteful we are. What if it was one-to-one? Why does it have to be two-to-one? Right. Because of the way we farm, of course. That nitrogen, you know, applied nitrogen, anhydrous ammonia, fossil fuel centered based machinery, uh, on and on and on, commodity-based. So it's two-to-one. But if we farmed differently and made it one-to-one, would it be better? Would it be better for the world? Would it be better for the food? Would it be cheaper? And the second thing, and nobody talks about that, Melinda. Yeah. I think that's fair game. If we're to have a farm bill, and we will in 2018, can't we talk about that? And, and the other thing is, you're absolutely right. When you want to make people's knees buckle, tell them the price of food is going to go up 2%. Mm-hmm. The price of food now, you, first of all, you eat 50%. Most Americans eat 50% of all the food they consume out of the house. Mm-hmm. So that's really expensive stuff. You're paying for labor, you're paying for gasoline, you're paying for transportation, all those things, packaging. So that's the most expensive food you can buy. And usually that food outside is even more expensive because it's high-calorie food. It's high sugar. Mm-hmm. And sugar, as you know, is, is a high-cost item. But all of that aside, we still spend about 11% of our take-home pay on food. Of course, it's the lowest in the world history. But here's my question. If I'm in the food business, why do I want to be the lowest price guy? Why do I want to sell Volkswagens? Don't I want to sell Cadillacs? Don't I want a higher margin and a better product? Isn't it make more sense if I find an area to produce food that, A, is healthy, people want, and I can charge a higher price? Some people are now are growing blue corn mm-hmm. that they then, you know, grind and sell to the tortilla market. Right. 
They're getting like 70 cents a pound for the blue corn crushed. 70 cents a pound at the farm. Right. It's remarkable. You know, a bushel of corn today weighs 56 pounds, and, and here in Central Illinois, it's worth $3.15. The bushel is three fifteen. These guys could sell six pounds and get $3.20, $4.20. So, you know, there's better ways to make money growing better food. Absolutely. And, and I'm very hopeful, believe it or not, that that's where the future is going to be in food. That's why 20 years ago I named the column the Fireman Food File because it's my belief that if you farm, you ought to be involved in food. Absolutely. And if you eat, you ought to be aware of what's going on on the farm. But it is very difficult to wade through. I mean, the average consumer is not going to wade through the farm bill. We need some very simple steps. So put on your visionary cap for a moment you sound hopeful about the future. How are we going to get there from here when we have what I perceive to be many roadblocks, not the least of which is consolidation of the seed and agrochemical industries? Well, the short answer is simple economics. Sooner or later, all those operations will blow themselves up. They're in the process of doing that right now. Right. The reason you see all that consolidation going on between, say, Dow and, and DuPont and Bayer and uh, Monsanto is none of them can make money. They're not making any money. Right. And so their idea is to join forces and then not make any more money or make even less money because now they're carrying all this debt. It's a classic big business response, and most of these big combinations never make money. Later, they just part their ways and say it was a mistake and kiss each other off. So when I look at, say, the money that USDA spends each and every year, $100 billion, $75 billion on food aid, you know, basically the supplemental nutrition aid program, $15 billion or so in direct farm payments, whether in crop insurance or soil and water conservation, stuff like that. And then a measly, a measly, a nickel's worth, of like 20 to $30 million a year spent on food and nutrition programs out here to help starting farmers. And I see the traction that that little money gets. Just think if they doubled that money. Mm-hmm. And they could. And I think the more people that get involved in food policy by questioning the Farm Bureau, by going to these open meetings, and they say, wait a minute, what are you talking about here? You know, we live in the Midwest, and we hear all kinds. You turn all kinds of advertisements. You know, you live in these smaller rural communities. Uh, I live near Peoria, Illinois, and the evening news is, is local news is blanketed with ag chemical ads, seed corn ads, stuff like that. The local college sports teams are all sponsored by all these big ag chemical companies. What if people just became aware of, you know, the local CSA or something? My daughter lives in Madison. And there's 30 community-supported agricultural farmers in that area, 30. And there's so many that they've combined to approach the medical community within Madison. And my daughter Gracie's medical insurance company pays half of her CSA membership because they know she's eating quality, healthy food. That is a trend. What a great idea. Mm -hmm. Those things are going to happen more and more often. They're going to find traction simply because... The old way is simply running out of gas. My goodness gracious, the biggest farm shows this late this summer, their biggest attraction, tractors without drivers. 
Right. Now we've risen to the, the epitome of stupidity. We have farming without farmers. Perfect, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, it sounds like it can't happen, but it is happening. And so farmers themselves, themselves are setting themselves up for this fall. Mm-hmm. And it'll happen. It's not, <laughs> I'm not a very good forecaster, but I've seen this, I've been in the game a long time, and I've seen a lot of people do a lot of foolish things. And this is, you know, we talk about not being sustainable. It's not even maintainable. I mean, we can't even make it work year to year anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm concerned that a lot of people are going to get hurt in this transition. And even assuming that we can make the transition, because I do see the positive side, as you say, with the CSAs and the growth of small organic farmers, but the contamination from drift, whether it's genetic or pesticide and herbicide drift, is really harming the landscape and the rural populations. So I hope we can get there before it's too late. I'm going to be hopeful and say we can because I think this younger generation of consumers are completely aware, or far more aware anyway than we were or are right now. They will be de- demanding more and more of this. And the other thing is, you know, I was always told as a young journalist back in the early 80s that the United States is spending a billion dollars a year on ag programs and, and back then. And everybody said, well, golly, that's, that's a lot of money, but you're spending $8 billion a year, and that's crazy. They can't keep that up. Well, they did, and now they're spending $80 billion a year on farm programs in Europe. Mm-hmm. We're spending $80 billion a year on food assistance programs in this country. What if we did it the European way and supported local agriculture where people could go out and buy food cheaper? Well, it is going to take an educated and motivated populace, I think, to be able to change the tides. So. Do you think it's still valuable for people to contact their legislators? Does it matter when we've got these giants sitting in a room with so many billions of dollars to influence the course of action from a policy perspective? Yes, but I think it's more important that you de-elect those people who are so uh, influenced by money. We complain all the time about the money in politics, but we never do anything about it because we don't have any money. But what we do have are votes. We do have those. And we should be out there. If the 40% of those people who do not vote would show up, these people would be on the run in 10 seconds. They wouldn't be able to hold office. In your state particularly, you had a, just a, a really rough go of really terrible anti-consumer, anti-customer legislation. Here in Illinois, you know, we don't even have a full state budget, you know, a year into the state budget process. We just have to unelect these people. Mm-hmm. And and that's what the ultimate part. You know, America, we might be 240 years old, but we're this beautiful, wonderful, simple idea yet. And we're always working to perfect it. But the key there is work. We have to show up to do the work. And the change that occurs here is done by those people who show up. And if we don't like the influence peddling, if we don't like the influence peddlers, get rid of them. Mm -hmm. You know, and vote them out. Organize and vote them out. Well, I want to recommend that our listeners go to your website, which is farmandfoodfile.com. We'll provide a link to that because I think your columns are fun to read. They're enlightening and they're empowering. And I want to thank you so much for being my guest. And I want to thank our listeners for joining us. 
and remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. And to summarize, just for one last minute, we have been speaking with Mr. Alan Giebert, an award-winning agricultural journalist who focuses on farm and food policy. He is the author of the popular, nationally syndicated weekly column titled The Farm and Food File. Thank you so much for your time, Mr. Giebert. You're more than welcome. Thank you.